Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Why do people go bald? Why are baboons' bums red? What's a light year? Why do leaves go brown in the autumn? Why are monkeys like bananas? Why do some things glow in the Why dark? Why do animals not understand you? Why do my receipts fade after a year? Don't know the answer? Ask the Naked Scientists. Hello and welcome to this week's Ask the Naked Scientists with me, Sue Marchant, Dr Chris and Dr Sarah. Ralph has called in and says, um, Hi Sue, my question is, what makes sand into quicksand? Well, this was studied by a researcher in... Europe, actually. His name's Daniel Bonn, and he was doing this about two or three years ago because it was prompted by a trip to Iran. He went on, on a conference trip to Iran, and while he was there, took the opportunity to go to the desert in Iran and have a look around. And he said he came across this sign, and it said, danger, quicksand, don't go in there. So he said, like all good researchers, seeing that sign, don't go in here, immediately prompted him to go and look at the quicksand. And there's, there's evidence that camels, people, people who disagree with the local regime, that kind of thing, all disappear in quicksand in Iran quite frequently. And so this got him thinking, well, what actually is it? So he took some samples and took them back to his laboratory in Paris, where he analysed them. And he therefore was able, on the basis of his analysis, to recreate artificial quicksand in the lab and then do some experiments on it. What he found, and the way he put it to me when I spoke to him about it a few years ago, is that you can think of quicksand as a bit like a house of cards. And the recipe is sand and silt or clay and salty water. And the sand particles form this house of cards, glued together fairly loosely by the clay and the salt, and the water is in all the spaces. And this forms a very fragile system. And if you put the tiniest amount of force on it, just like your house of cards, it will collapse. And when it collapses, say you've put your foot in it, quite literally, it collapses so that all the sand falls down around your foot. So what you end up with is that instead of the sand with lots of water between it, you end up with a big clump of sand around the trapped body part and water on top. And this means that the density of the quicksand goes from being very low, in other words, it's very easy to push things through it, to very, very dense because the particles are all packed together very, very tightly and they're very heavy. And this means it's really difficult to get out. Um, in the movies, you see people sinking away in quicksand and drowning. Mm. Well, the reassuring thing is that can't happen because if you measure the density of quicksand, it's about double the density of a human body. And that means that if you were to put a human in quicksand, you'd only sink to about halfway down in the quicksand. But the real, the real sort of bad news is that you also see people in the movies being hitched up to a car or something and being dragged out. The evidence from Daniel Bond's laboratory is that it takes about the same amount of force to pull out a trapped leg as it takes to lift the average family car. Oh. So this would quite literally pull someone to pieces if you do what you see them doing in Hollywood. 
So I asked him, how do you get out of the quicksand? And the answer is, you have to make very small circles with the trapped body part. You just make tiny circles. And the idea is to recreate that, that physiological, ha- that sort of physical house mm. of cards with mm. the sand. And you put the water back around the sand particles. And this enables it to free the body part and you can get out again. So don't just drag yourself out and don't struggle. But do, if you do get stuck, bear in mind... Physics proves that you can't drown. You can't sink. You'll only sink about halfway because the sand is twice as dense as you are, so you will not drown if you just stay still and relax and then hope the help comes soon. But make small circles with the trapped body part to resuspend the particles and you might just get free. Oh, I'm glad that you've um, <laughs> given us that answer because that's, that's made me feel a little bit safer now, should I fall into quicksand. Well, it is very dangerous. Isn't there was a lady just? who died in Alaska a couple of years ago. She went on an all-terrain bike on a beach in Alaska and where some glaciers had been melting they brought a lot of silt down with them and the silt was doing exactly the same thing as the sand it had made quicksand on the beach and she got stuck and then she actually got stuck in the silt but then the tide came on on in on the beach and of course it wasn't actually the quicksand that killed her it was the fact that she couldn't get out and rescuers couldn't get to her in time to free her and she unfortunately got the the sea coming over her head and you do see the same thing on beaches around the UK too Mm. people get stuck in in the sand and then the tide comes in over the top. Very sad. Right, thank you for that. Um, Foxy has sent a message in to say, when I get a cut, my terrier tends to come and lick it and this seems to help it close up quicker than if I'd left it. Why is this? Is that, and is it something to do with dog saliva? The, well, you're advised, if you do get a wound, to suck it. But I'm not sure actually how valuable that is because the human mouth and other animals' mouths is a seething mass of bacteria. There are acres and acres of bacteria living in your mouth. And I'm not talking a few, we're talking hundreds of millions per square centimetre of surface area in your mouth. The the bacterial count in your mouth is huge. And the same goes for dogs. I think human bacteria tend to be worse in wounds than dog bacteria do, probably because our immune system is better at fending off dog bacteria, but it's better at tolerating human bacteria. So I think the bacteria uh, in us know when they get to the wrong place how to be nastier. Um, In terms of actually sucking or licking a wound, the benefit from that really, I think, is dislodging foreign bodies because a major problem with getting a cut or a scrape is that if you get dust and dirt in the wound, it then stops the wound from closing up properly and it also, being a foreign surface, can provide hidey holes for bacteria to loiter. So if you lick or suck a wound, then you can get some of the foreign bodies out and you also encourage bleeding, which drives out more of these foreign bodies and bacteria, and that makes the wound inherently cleaner. Um, whether or not it's a good idea to get a dog to lick your wound, I, I think it's probably a bad idea, actually. There's, I don't think there's any evidence that, that dogs' saliva contains pro-coagulants, sort of anti, anti-bleeding agents, but may, maybe someone knows. I don't know, Sarah, are you aware of terrier spit being good for, for wound healing? I'm not aware of it being good for wound healing, but I agree completely with you that it's, it's uh, not very clean and rather dirty to let your dog or yourself sort of lick a wound to get all those mouth bacteria in it. Risk of wound infection, I think. Yeah, and also think of where the dogs have been licking before they licked your hand as well. Mm. Probably good reason not to do that. Um, Dr Uh, Mike asks um, that he recently had a bad bout of influenza, sat in a hot bath but shivered. Why is that? Well, when we have flu, we all know that feeling of having a high temperature and you shiver and get hot and cold flushes with that. And you'll feel that way wherever you are, whether you're on the equator in a really hot climate or up in the Arctic, really, really cold, or in the UK. And basically, when you've got the flu, your body temperature is trying to go up and the shivering creates more heat to push your body temperature up. 
And Chris knows a bit more about the, the, what's going on in the brain there with the hypothalamus. Flu actually grows less well at high temperatures. When we try and uh, culture flu in the laboratory to diagnose flu infections, we actually turn the incubator temperature down from body temperature, which is 37 degrees, to about 34 degrees because flu grows best at lower temperatures. And what this means is that if you want to fight off something like flu, the body t- can do that by boosting your body temperature because just by making the body hotter, the effect of that is to disable the flu slightly. There are other effects as well, which are that scientists have now shown that running a temperature does seem to help white blood cells that fight infection get out of the bloodstream and into the tissues where the infection is. They did experiments on mice where they put mice in an environment where they were much warmer than normal and they monitored how well their white blood cells moved out of their circulation and into these structures called lymph nodes. Those are the glands that you feel coming up when you've got an infection. And they found that the white blood cells were much better at getting out at higher temperatures. And so what this suggests is that this is the body's way of disabling microorganisms that are trying to make us ill and boosting our ability of our immune system to get out of the blood and into the the tissues where they can fight the infection. The reason that that the um, person was still shivering despite having a hot bath is because the body, when it knows it's got an infection, produces a whole flurry of chemicals that mobilise the immune system called cytokines. And these cytokines are hormones that are in the bloodstream and they trigger the immune system to do cell expansion, to grow lots of cells to fight the infection, but they also trigger the uh, brain and the part of the brain that Sarah referred to, which is the hypothalamus, that's in the bottom of your brain, right in the centre, to turn up your internal thermostat. And what this does is it mobilises your body's ability to generate heat. So one of the things it does is it boosts your metabolism because metabolism, chemical reactions, generate heat and that pushes up body temperature. The second thing it does is to tell your body to generate temperature or heat in other ways that it knows how to and that's called shivering because when you shiver what you're doing is turning muscles on at the same time as each other. So instead of one muscle being active and the muscle that does the opposite job being switched off so that your arm or leg can move for example, it activates both sets of muscles at exactly the same time so the piece of the body it's turning on doesn't go anywhere It just sort of shakes a bit, that's a shiver. But because the muscles are active and they're only about 20% efficient, then the majority of the energy they burn off, 80%, becomes heat, which goes into the blood for supplying that muscle, back into the core of the body, and it pushes your temperature up. And because that effect is driven by hormones, it's not driven by your physical temperature. Even if you have a hot bath, you're still going to have a shivering response because that's your brain telling your body to do that. Chris, we all know that... um it's a good idea to take paracetamol when you're feeling absolutely rotten with a temperature to bring it down. Does that actually prolong the flu illness potentially if you're stopping that disabling of the flu virus or any other cold virus? Well, it's interesting. That's, that's what these researchers said because they were saying perhaps by taking lots of aspirin, paracetamol, to bring your temperature down, you might in fact be prolonging the cold a bit because, or the flu because your immune system's slightly less good at getting it out of or getting the white blood cells into where they're needed. But I think the effect is actually quite marginal and I think actually most people would much rather take the paracetamol. And in little children it can prevent them having fits with a high temperature and you certainly don't want them to have those if you can help it. Alan, who's listening online, has asked a question, Chris. He said, consider a cable that links the aerial to the main TV in your house. In the old days of analogue TV, slight pressures on the cable made no visible effect of the quality of the picture. Now, in these days of free view, the slightest movement of a cable causes a loss of picture for some 10 seconds. So why is digital information affected so badly by this little pressure change? The reason is in the way in which the information gets into your television. Now, with an analogue television, what that means is that the 
transmitter that's making the television picture puts into the air an electromagnetic wave, that means uh, an electrical signal which wiggles through the air and comes to your aerial, and they, it's a changing magnetic and electrical field is the way you can think of it. And this changing magnetic field hits your aerial and it induces a current, an electrical current, to flow in your aerial. It comes down the aerial and it goes down your aerial lead and it goes into your television and it's then fed to a, a decoder system and an amplifier which then applies that system to the tube so that it knows how to build the picture on your screen. That's analogue. Now, digital is a bit different. Now, the way you make a digital picture is that rather than sending a wiggly wave through the air that contains effectively a representation of the television picture, what digital does is it takes the television picture off of the camera that the camera in the studio is making. It converts it into a digital code. So it's a bit like you going to the beach, looking at one of those, those sort of measures on the side of the, the groin or the pier, which, which tells you how high the waves are going past and writing down every or probably about a hundred thousand times a second what the height of the wave is and then you convert the numbers that you've now got on your bit of paper into digital which means a system of noughts and ones and then you transmit those noughts and ones on your radio wave to your aerial and then your television takes the system of noughts and ones and it rebuilds a picture by taking the noughts and ones and converting them back from noughts and ones into waves inside your television. Now why that's so good is that as long as you hear a naught and a one in the right order to rebuild those waves, you can rebuild a perfect picture. You can't get any interference. You either get the picture perfectly or you don't get the picture at all. Now where it is bad is that it introduces delay because it takes time for the digital signal to be decoded and those the original waveform, the original picture, to be recreated inside your television. That's one downside. The second one is the one that Alan's found, which is that if the signal is momentarily interrupted, then there's a big long pause while the telly works out what's going on and then starts to rebuild the picture again. So rather than it sort of dying gracefully and you're getting a bit of interference or a bit of ghosting, but you can still hear usually the sound and maybe see a bit of a picture, you get nothing until the picture gets a restored signal coming in and it can frame up again and it knows what order the data's coming in and what to do with it. So that's why digital is so sensitive. But the good thing about digital is that you're sending just noughts and ones, so it's much less vulnerable to interference and you either get a perfect picture or no picture. Um, and that's why everyone's so keen to embrace it, because you can pack much more information into the radio spectrum using digital. And the government can sell you licences for that, so they can make loads of money, and that's why they want to do it. Thank you very much indeed. Now, accents. Daniel says, what causes accents? Is it something scientific? And if you travel from one place or another, how do you change accents? It's um, not particularly clever. If you think about it, we've got so many different languages around the world and within each country, lots of different accents. And it's basically to do with what we learn when we're a young baby and small child learning to speak. We tend to copy our parents and those around us at the nursery we go to um, and then later on the school classes we go to. And kids particularly like to pick up accents because they then sort of fit in with their social surroundings and the people around them and sound the same. And the majority of kids tend to like to sound the same and, and fit into their school class because um, I think adults tend to like to be a bit more individual about things but children certainly don't um, 
I can certainly remember a child that I met when I was young at school. She was um, moved down from Scotland with her parents and she was quite incredible. She'd have a very, very English accent at school and then if you went to play at her house, she'd talk in a broad Scottish accent so she could do both to fit into her surroundings. <laughs> I've got an Australian friend who, uh, when I was in Australia last month, she said, uh, well, we met up in Sydney because she works in Adam Brooks Hospital in Cambridge and, mm-hmm. and she said to me, the first thing she said to me was, hi Chris, my accent's come back. And I thought, you never, you didn't ever lost your accent. But to her, uh, she noticed that her Australian accent had become much stronger again, being on home territory. Um, the thing that, that Sarah's pointing out is that you know kids embrace accents much more vigorously than, than adults do because you can't teach an old dog new tricks. We tend to get set in our ways as we get older, and it's much harder to get adults to embrace accents than children. But we do have a little bit of a change as we get older. The one area where you'll notice accents really appearing and disappearing is on stage though people who sing people will tend Mm. to sing without an accent or they'll imitate the accent of the person who first wrote the song so you'll find a lot of people sound quite american when they sing and that's just because of the way the music was written and the person who sung it who they're trying to sound like and so you can often get people with quite broad accents sounding very very different when they sing and you're a singer sue You, you probably know that Absolutely true, and I used to be, uh, well, I'm a terrible mimic as well, because I, I kind of love accents, if you know what I mean, and love making So what accent things. do you sing with then? Um, well, I sing with my own, really, I guess. It's just, uh, it's with my soul. <laughs> with my soul, baby, with my soul. But, so yeah, it's American I'm, accent, there you go, that's what I said. <laughs> no, not really. <laughs> Now, Gus has asked an interesting question here. He says, in the Middle Ages, Middle Ages, which none of us remember, but Gus must do, um, they said, if you want to give birth to a boy, eat plenty of bananas. Scientists have now found evidence that this was good advice. Apparently, potassium is the key ingredient. It is also a key ingredient for boys. Yeah, you're all bananas. Um, they've also found that the higher in calories, the more was the chance of having a boy. Breakfast cereal also played a role. Can diets really make that much of a difference? difference during the period of gestation i don't think there's any link with potassium to be honest um we've got lots of potassium in our body our cells are crammed with the stuff and you're right that bananas contain a lot of potassium but i don't think there's that much evidence saying that if you have a bit more potassium you will definitely have boys i can't see how that would work but the calorie story is absolutely true and in the last couple of weeks there was a study that was published which we actually covered on the naked scientists and what the researchers did was to follow up women's dietary habits and then find out what what sex of the baby they had and they found that women who were having a slightly more calorie dense diet were more likely to have a boy and women having a slightly less calorie dense diet were more likely to have a girl so why should this be there must be some kind of physiological or body, bodily reason for this well from an evolutionary point of view you can think of it in these terms that if you are starving and there's not enough food to go around It's a good thing to have lots of girls. Why? Because girls and and women are the only things that can make more babies. So if you have, uh, say, a big population die-off because of a famine or starvation, you want enough women to survive so that you can rekindle your species once times are good again. If you have lots of blokes floating around, they're quite good at going and catching food, but they also eat a lot of food. They tend to have bigger bodies, so they tend to be more calorie demanding. They tend to eat more, so they're harder to sustain and maintain. So much better to have a few fewer blokes, have more women when times are bad, and then when times are good, you have lots of boys so that they can mate with all the girls, and then you have lots of population again. 
Um, so that's the sort of evolutionary argument for, for why you should see this effect. Whether or not this means that women who are desperately trying for a boy should go and scoff themselves to their heart's content, um, obviously there is a downside to doing that because you're more likely to then have other problems in pregnancy if you've got too much weight around your middle. So um, I think at the end of the day, um, it's probably it's still it's still a sort of toss-up, to be honest, about whether or not you're, you're going to get a boy or a girl. And I think you can probably tip the balance very, very slightly, because the effect was quite subtle. It's not like saying, if I have an extra bowl of cornflakes, I'm going to have a boy. It doesn't work like that. I think what it does is weight the dice a bit, so you're more likely to roll that magic six if you want one sex or the other. Um, I, I don't think it, it's, it's as profound as saying, I just eat more and I'll have a boy. But there, there definitely was an effect. Thank you. Another Tony has called in. Say hi, Dr. Chris. I wanted to know what is a non-rheumatic aortic valve stenosis? Well, rheumatic fever is a consequence of catching a disease called streptococcus. Now, streptococcal infection, um, there are lots of different bacterial forms of streptococcus, but the one which causes this is what's called a group A streptococcus. And rheumatic fever used to be much more common than it is today, but what people think happened was that people caught streptococcal infection, sore throat or however it manifested, and this then triggered the immune system a few weeks after they had the infection to mistake some of the tissues around the body for bad bacterial tissue instead of the body's own tissue and because of mis making that mistake the immune system would then turn on our own tissue and attack it and a common site that gets affected is the heart especially the lining of the heart the valves in the heart and these thin cords called the cordy tendony which stabilise some of the valves in the heart and they often got attacked and, and got thickened and, and shortened and this would lead to the valves not working very well so a common cause of valve problems in hearts in older people today are people who had rheumatic fever when they were little uh, now that doesn't mean that all causes of heart valve problems are down to rheumatic fever and in fact there are other reasons why you can get problems with heart valves S for instance as you get older um, over time tissues just get thicker and they get less pliable and one of these uh, valves that can get affected in this way is the aortic valve this is the connection between the left side of your heart where the heart squirts blood out into your main blood vessel, the aorta and that valve can just get calcified and thickened with age that happens, it's a consequence of getting older um, but sometimes some people have other things going on in their bodies which make that a bit more likely some people are born with a valve which is already an abnormal shape about 2% of the population have something called a bicuspid aortic valve so the aortic valve normally has three valve leaflets three cusps that stick out into the into the passageway where the blood would go and they all come together to close the valve and some people have an abnormal form of the valve where instead of three they have two of they have two and the two that they've got are, are a funny shape and this leads to an unusual aperture so the valve is tighter than it should be and what the effect of that is is to narrow the outlet of the heart so the heart has to develop more pressure to pump the blood out and the consequence of that is that the heart has to work harder and it can then then cause sort of knock-on problems there are other reasons why people can get heart damage um, one of them is that bacterial infections can spread from other parts of the body and get onto the heart valves and often the mouth is a common source we talked about mouth bacteria earlier well the mouth contains another kind of streptococcal infection um, viridans streptococci and these bacteria can spread from the mouth round to the heart valve and colonise it 
and then they cause inflammation and damage to the valve and sometimes even make holes in it and that's called bacterial endocarditis thankfully quite rare but it can happen and there are some other inflammatory conditions one of them including SLE systemic lupus erythematosus and that also is where the immune system runs amok and damages tissues that it shouldn't and that also can lead to damage to heart valve so those are just a few examples of how your heart can get damaged and the, the, the bottom line is that, that you need these valves in good working order because otherwise the heart can't pump blood properly if they go wrong you can develop heart failure and this is where the heart can't provide the body with the blood that it needs and so you get breathless you feel very tired and in worst case scenario you can die thank you chris um john in peterborough asks a very interesting one he's a baker and uses yeast which is a living organism most of the time it's fresh but on occasions we have to freeze it when you defrost yeast it is apparently still a living organism why can't the human body survive the same conditions Well, John, uh, the reason is that yeast is a single-celled organism. Its cells are very similar to the cells that make up our own body, in fact, and scientists often use yeast to study how yeast processes various chemicals and does various things because it's so similar to us that we can use it to give us some kinds of insights into how our own body works. But there's a big difference between drying down a single cell and drying down a whole organism. And, for instance, we're we're pretty good at drying down individual cells, not just yeast and bacteria, but we can also do it for human cells. People store bits of their ovaries. If a woman's going to have some kind of surgery or some kind of medical intervention that might damage her future children, her eggs that are stored inside her, and that includes things like radiotherapy and chemotherapy, what she might do is to put on ice a bit of her ovary and then it can be re-implanted later. Also, men can store sperm in the same way. They're just single cells that are being preserved there, and they can be preserved relatively well. Part of the the reason why bodies are hard to preserve is because when you put them in the deep freeze, uh, what you want to do is to minimise the formation of ice crystals inside the cells, because when you get an ice crystal forming inside a cell, uh, unless the ice forms very, very small crystals... What tends to happen is you get big crystals that are sharp and jagged and cells have just a very thin membrane, an oily membrane around them and these jagged crystals can spike holes in the membrane and this is why when you put a strawberry in your freezer and then defrost it or a raspberry it comes out like a mush because all of the cells rupture and break apart and this is why frozen vegetables aren't as good for you as fresh vegetables because if you freeze a vegetable all the cells fall apart and then when you cook the vegetables the water soaks up all of the goodness out of the vegetables it leaches all the vitamins away and you're left with just uh, the the indigestible and the insoluble bits behind so that's why it's good to eat fresh vegetables rather than the frozen variety but in terms of the yeast again um, yeast is also well adapted and so are certain bacteria to survive in harsh environments and there are times when yeast might have to survive without much water or in a dry environment for quite a while and so it's possible for yeast to to form these little sort of spores they get down into small husks which are very very stable and can tolerate that kind of environment for extended periods so you have a bag of yeast it's been dried down and it's metabolically inactive it's switched off all its genes it's not doing anything it's just waiting a bit like a seed in the ground for rain to come and warmth to come so it can germinate again and so if you wanted to try and pull the same stunt with a human body somehow what you'd have to do is to get the whole human body to be perfused with something to stop uh, the ice crystals being very big and get them all to form at the same time so they were tiny crystals in all your cells all at the same time and then you might stand a chance but it's just too difficult to get that to happen. So no one's managed to do it yet. But there are people who put their body in cryo chambers. There are people who, who, when they die, ask to have their body frozen and kept. They pay thousands of dollars in America for this, the idea being that one day maybe medical science will have moved on enough to bring them back to life, and that's what they're kind of gambling on. 
Mm, interesting stuff. Agnes has called in to say she was recently advised that fizzy drinks helps when you're flying. Why is this? Um, that's an interesting question. Certainly when you're flying, going up to whatever you're flying at, 36,000 feet and, and down, it certainly helps to chew something or swallow something, either a boiled sweet or a drink. And that basically helps to alter the pressures in your eustachian tubes in your ears and move the fluid around in there so that your ears feel more comfortable. And I'm sure we're all familiar with that awful pressure-like feeling that you get sometimes and you have to swallow to, to clear it. I'm just wondering if, if just swallowing a drink will help. The other thought is that um, when you're flying, particularly on long-haul flights, you do tend to get quite dehydrated and it's important to drink throughout the flight. So maybe if I'm drinking any sort of drink, whether it's fizzy or still, will help. Have you got any thoughts, Chris, on why no, a fizzy I... drink might be more useful? I would think that a fizzy drink would in fact make you more uncomfortable because all of the gas bubbles, as soon as they go into you, are more likely to then form bigger bubbles in your stomach and make you feel more bloated because the you air pressure in the cabin... Well, I think you probably would actually because the cabin is at a lower pressure so the bubbles will, will take up more space than they did down at ground level because the gas will spread out more and I think this might lead to more bloating. So uh, I'd stick to the still stuff or just gin and tonic. That's, that's what I drink on aeroplanes. Let's get to our next question because we're running out of time. Julie says, can Dr Chris tell us why we get goosebumps when we sneeze Mm, not sure why you should get goosebumps associated with sneezing um maybe that's a what's called an idiosyncratic reaction it's specific just to julie but the the interesting thing about goosebumps is the reason we have them is they're actually related to what's called piloerection this is when your hairs stand on end because if you look at where the goosebump forms on the skin it's all related to a hair follicle where a hair comes out of the skin so why do we have that well there are tiny muscles which are connected to the shaft of each of your hairs and if you were a smaller animal when you get scared and you want to make your hair stand on end you contract those muscles and the hair stands up and it makes you look much bigger so animals want to make themselves look bigger when they're and therefore scarier to frighten off other animals that might be wanting to attack them the other reason they do it is to warm themselves up because if you make the hair stand on end then you trap a layer of air which is a very bad conductor of heat against your skin and this means you're much less likely to lose heat so fast to the environment so it's both a, a sort of thermal effect and it's also a scare off the opposition effect um, in us we get them therefore when we get scared or when we get cold for the same reason it's just that we're much less hairy these days and so so they tend to be pretty useless, but they're, they're sort of vestige of our evolutionary origins. Um, they're driven, their origin is, is from nerve impulses from the brain. We talked about the hypothalamus earlier, which is the part of the brain that controls body temperature. Uh, the manifestations of the body temperature control, as well as making you shiver, is to switch on other ways of, of saving heat in the body, and, and that includes increasing your uh, goosebumps, so making your hair stand on end, and also diverting blood away from the body's surface, away from the skin, and into the core of your body. And that's why on a cold day, you tend to get very cold hands and cold feet, because the body thinks, if I keep pumping all this blood through my skin, I'm going to get very, very cold. Therefore, if I restrict the flow to the deepest tissues, I'll save, I'll save myself from losing so much heat. So that's why it happens. That's it for this week. Our doctors will be back with me next week for more Ask the Naked Scientist. But don't forget, you can also catch them on the Naked Scientist podcast, which you can find on the Naked Scientist website, www.nakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com. 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.